I have an illustration to start out with today that I was hesitant to use, um, but I'll go ahead and use it because it has to do with the Yankees, so that's all right. As, as you know, I, I grew up um, just outside New York City, and I went to the Yankee games a lot. My family had season tickets. And ever since I was a little kid, it started with my grandma would pull me out of elementary school for opening day. I would go with my dad and my grandpa all the time. I was always at a Yankee game. Well, if you've ever been to Yankee Stadium, you would know it's not in the best part of town. And that's a huge understatement. Yankee Stadium is in a horrible, horrible area of town. That's today. When I was a kid, you know, way, way back when, it was an even worse part of town. There's been a lot of improvements on um, crime in New York uh, over the past 20 or 30 years. And when I would go, there were two choices. You could park right next to the stadium for about $30, which is like $10 million now in your own current money. To park next to the stadium for 30 bucks, you could park in a distant lot for $5 and walk to the stadium. Well, we never parked near the uh, stadium. I wasn't driving. I didn't complain. But we'd park and we'd walk. And when you walked, you would go through this horrible area, and there would be, you know, there, were, there would be people who would get mugged on the way to the stadium. There would be um, women who'd be pulled into alleys and assaulted. There were these window washers as you drove to the lot. In the city, they used to spit shine your window and then just beat on your car until you gave them money. It was just an awful area. Well, when I would go, I'd go with usually my dad, some of his friends, and their kids. And my dad and his friends all used to carry certain uh, handheld devices that you needed a permit for and went in holsters. So it felt much safer around them. And, and they were big, burly men. And in particular, my dad had one friend, Johnny Gigantiello, who, uh, who's, when, he came, when he came to the wedding in Ohio, Laura's whole family's looking at him like this. John has fingers about this long. He stands about this tall and equally as wide. Really sweet guy, but you don't mess with him. And when we would walk to the stadium, I felt completely safe. I never was concerned someone was going to mug us or assault us or attack us. Now, if I walked off on my own, I'd be a little bit concerned, you know, an 8, 9, 10-year-old kid walking through this uh, dangerous area. But with my dad and my dad's friends, I had nothing to be concerned about. People would spit shine the windows. They never got paid. They never banged on the windows, surprisingly. No one ever stole our money or pickpocketed us or took the car or anything like that. It was just a very safe environment. Well, life is not too different from going to a Yankee game. You see, we got a journey to travel from a parking lot, and the parking lots we parked in had fences and security guards and barbed wires. They were secure. From a secure parking lot to the promised land of Yankee Stadium, where great things always happen. But the journey along the way can be dangerous, and we need protection along the way. Which brings us to Psalm 23, verse 4. And Psalm 23, verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The valley of the shadow of death. What's David talking about here? Sheep, right? We're talking about a shepherd. And I always used to think like, you know, there's this cool sign out in Jerusalem. Welcome to the valley of the shadow of death. And like these really shady and dark and like, Ooh. He's like, come on sheep, let's go. Well, not so much. The valley of the shadow of death is referring to sheep moving. See, sheep didn't live on a home range all year. This is the case all over the world. Sheep don't stay in the same place year-round. Two months a year, they stay on the home range. Two months of the year, summer and fall, they go to the high country, where the grass is grown, where, where it's uh, nutrients are fertile. They need to be shifted there for the home grounds to recover, but primarily to receive the nourishment of the high ground. Well, why would a shepherd take a sheep 
through the valley of the shadow of death, through a dangerous journey. Why? why? I mean, why not just keep the sheep at home where they're safe, right? Well, the reason was, the only way to get to the high ground where they needed to go was to go through, guess what? Valleys. Now, there was no valley, like, it's not like there's a valley of the shadow of death and a couple mountains over the valley of the sunshine and lilies and the other way, the valley of sunflowers and good tidings. No, valleys were referred to as shadows of death. The reason was because valleys were extremely dangerous. Valleys were, first of all, structured, especially in this area of the world, with very steep cliffs. So you had a confined area where you were walking through, and predators of sheep, like lions and bears and mountain lions and snakes, etc. Well, I don't know if snakes think that far out. They knew that sheep would be coming through. They could hear them coming. They would know over time when sheep come through. And they would sit and wait. To, to attack a string sheep or a sick sheep that was falling behind and pick them off. It was a very dangerous place to go. There were also weather hazards. Storms would come up. You know how you read the stories of like the, the disciples on the Sea of Galilee and a storm came up all of a sudden, right? Well, the weather patterns there, storms will come up quickly, and if you get a, uh, a steep valley, a steep cliffed valley, and a huge downpour comes in, you have flash floods that will run through the valley. That's very dangerous for a sheep. Sheep also are thin-skinned animals. If it gets cold on them too quickly, they can die of hypothermia very quickly. You see, there are lots of potential problems of going through a valley. A shepherd, though, like David, who took his sheep through there, didn't just show up like, huh, looks like a good valley, let's go. He would know the journey. He would know the dangers. He would be prepared to defend and protect his sheep from the dangers as they go through the valley. Okay? In life, there are two ways of looking at the valley of the shadow of death. The first one is take life in general as the valley of the shadow of death, and here's what I mean. We, we started out in Eden, in perfection. Adam and Eve sinned. The Bible's about the trip from, from the Garden of Eden to heaven. And it's a journey, the journey where we see God's redemptive plan for humanity as we travel through that life on our way to heaven. In a sense, life is, is um, illustrative of the valley of the shadow of death, and I'll expand on that in a minute. They're also, in our life as we go through, we have peaks and valleys. We have highs and lows. And we can see those lows as valleys in the shadow of death. Okay? So, the, the um, reason the shepherd took the sheep through the valley was to get to the high ground. The reason God takes us through the valley is to get to the high ground. And it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. See, David elaborates on this, and this is what the focus is on. Actually, let me back up. I'm sorry. Let's back up a little bit. Through the valley, one point I missed really easily here was, there's also great nourishment. One of the reasons you go through the valleys is because it gets you where you're going. The second reason is because the valleys are full of, of rich grass and pure water. In order to make it to the high country, you need the nourishment in the valley. You could, I guess, circumvent the valley and go on the peaks and work your way around somehow to the high ground. You, the sheep would starve to death and die on the way. There's not food up there. When you go through the valley, you get nourished. In our lives, too, I'll explain how as we go through the valleys, there's necessary nourishment to get us to the high ground. Sometimes we like to flee the valleys, but the reality of the situation is we need to be in them. So let's, let's go with dangers before we get to the protections. I said this world can be seen as a valley of the shadow of death, right? Life is fun. I mean, life is not horrible, is it? 
I guess last night for some people, for others. It, life is not horrible, right? It's fun. There's lots of fun stuff to do in life. There's picnics. There's uh, baseball games. There's playing outside. There's kids. There's newborn babies. There's grandparents. There's good food. There's good friends. There's lots of good stuff to life. I think sometimes we can, we can get a little uh, negative reputation as Christians. It's like you don't dance, you don't have fun, you don't talk, and then you die, and then you can do some of that stuff in heaven but not dancing because God would have none of that. You know, and it's like, ooh, I want to be a Christian just like you. Well, life is fun, but life is also dangerous. You see, life is full of lots of pitfalls. Life is full of lots of subtle dangers. Now, most of us don't struggle with big, like, I don't know if there's anyone here, I'm going to assume not. Who walks around going, oh man, I just have a craving to murder somebody today. I'm going to leave church today. I'm just going to hunt somebody down and murder them today. Like, we don't struggle like that mostly. You know, you got to be a little loopy. So, it's not like the devil trolls around on this earth saying, oh, I'm going to get Matt Barkus to murder someone today. I'm going to work on him till he kills his neighbor. It's not going to work. But the devil's subtle, and what he does is he takes what's bad and makes it look good. And he takes what's good it makes it look bad. The problem is we usually miss it until it's caused some problems in our life. Now, you can see it in other people's lives a little easier than your own, which is part of the reason we have fellowship. Um, it's one of the reasons we should care for each other more as opposed to just like thinking in our head, talking about judgment. You know, Am I judging someone if I say it or am I not? I'll just keep quiet. Well, the point is we need to pay attention for ourselves. The world is full of tons of hidden dangers. In the valley of the shadow of death, Sometimes you have snakes that hide in the brush. And they'll bite a sheep if the sheep get too close. Well, in life, sometimes you have snakes that hide out in the brush, but they're really, really subtle. Can I give you an example? How do you know God's will? The primary way that we know God's will and that God speaks to us today is not through sitting and waiting for Him to audibly tell us what to do. It's through knowing what this says. Now, the problem we all have, you know, it doesn't help growing up not a Christian, because I, I wasted so many years when I could have been reading this book. And shockingly, there are still days I waste when I should be reading this book. We don't read it, we don't know it that well, and then we get frustrated. God, what do you want me to do? Just tell me! And he's like, dude... I don't, I don't think God says dude. I think he says, John, read the book. Read the book. See, I, like, I, I buy new things and I don't like to read the instructions. I'll put them together and I get frustrated, and then you'll hear in our house, Laura! Laura! Laura will come in. Or I'll pick up the phone. Dad, when you put in this, how did you do it? You're like, I want someone to tell me because I'm too lazy to read the instruction book. Well, frankly, I do that sometimes with this. God, what do you, how did I end up here? Aren't you in charge? Aren't you supposed to direct me? He's like, John, yeah, but I need you to let me shepherd you. Let me give you an example. So we know God's will primarily through God's word, right? Everybody here, Renee, you don't answer this. Everyone here loves to read, right? Everyone is up all the time at night reading, constantly have a book in front of them. You rarely watch TV. You never talk on the cell phone. Laptops never show up in front of you. You just love and love to read, right? Wait a minute. The problem is we live in a society with lots of stuff to do besides reading. We are a TV-focused, uh, immediate gratification, high-energy entertainment culture. Kids start out at a very young age watching TV, okay? They play video games ad nauseum. They um, play organized sports. None of these things are bad, but they pose little problems. You watch TV. Anyone here ever watch TV? You watch TV, look at a commercial. 
pay attention to how long a screen stays on, you know what I mean? Like a, a scene on a screen, it's usually less than a second. Boom, 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 boom. Watch a TV show, it's a rapid movement, back and forth, high entertainment. You basically um, lose the ability to focus if you watch that too much. So if you sit a kid in front of a TV for too long, they start to lose the ability to focus. TV is not bad, but it's, it has a potential for problems. Organized sports. My kids play organized sports. I grew up playing organized sports. They're not bad, but they tend to have a problem because they take away kids' imagination and ability to, use, uh, to resolve conflict. When I was little, I played one organized sport a year, tops. Most of the time, I'd pedal my little bike up to the schoolyard, and we'd see what was laying around, like a stick and a rock, and we'd play a game with it. Now, it probably wasn't the safest thing, like stickball with a rock and a big stick, but we'd come up with games. And boys, you know, we'd, we'd get in arguments. You were out. I was not. Yes, you were. I'm going to punch you in the face. You were out. But we usually didn't hit each other. We resolved conflict. Nowadays, kids don't have to worry about that because you always have an adult around you giving you the rules and telling you what to do, and they stop before a problem arises. So you got low attention span, unimaginative un uh, conflict-resolving problems. Again, nothing wrong with TV, nothing wrong with organized sports. My kids watch both and do both. Okay? Then we simply don't read. So we don't develop an ability to read. We find lots of other entertaining things, and we're distracted all the time. Those kids turn into adults like us who get home from work and constantly have to have the TV on, and how often do you find yourself sitting at night in front of the TV, maybe it's just me and I'll feel like a fool, sitting in front of the TV with a laptop on your lap and a phone stuck to your ear? Okay, that's a lot of stuff going on. So I'm watching the TV show, talking to someone on the phone, never someone from church, talking to someone on the phone and surfing the internet, all at the same time. How often do you get in the car and turn the radio off and listen to nothing? Can you do it? I love it. Laura hates it. Let's listen to the wheels on the road. How, how many people have to have an iPod stuck in their head all the time? What I'm getting at is none of these things are bad, but what they do is slowly erode our ability to read God's Word, to quiet our minds, and to listen to what He's telling us. The world is full of, these are little dangers. Nothing bad, but if used outside of God's will, have potential problems. We don't have to walk through life like, okay, God says don't murder anybody. I am determined not to kill anyone on my way to heaven. But God also says, meditate on His Word. Put it in your heart so you can know His will. So as you're going through life not murdering anybody, we forget where we're supposed to be going because we don't have an ability to read God's Word. How often do you, do you say to yourself, not out loud, especially at church, the Bible's kind of boring. The Bible's not kind of boring. We make it boring by our inability to focus on it. We need to be cognizant as we go through life of all the potential dangers out there. They're all over the place, but they're so subtle. It doesn't mean life's bad, it just means you have to have a keen eye. And how do you have a keen eye? By letting God lead you. A good shepherd is going to keep his sheep away from the bushes. But they have to be allowing God to shepherd them. So David says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Why is this the case? He refers to two things that God carries around with him. Your rod and your staff. Any idea what a rod is? If you go out to uh, the western U.S., shepherds don't usually carry rods, they carry rifles. They do carry a staff, which is that curved thing, but they carry a rifle. Well, in this part of the world where the psalm is set, shepherds still, to this day, do not carry rifles. They carry a rod. And they carry a rod and a staff, and it's all they carry. Because when shepherds go to the high country, they don't drive an SUV. They walk. And when they walk, they've got to be light on their feet, because they're walking a long distance. They typically will have water, a little bit of food to eat, a rod, and a staff. So what's a rod? 
when a shepherd gets old, when a kid gets old enough to watch his dad's sheep, the first thing he does is go out into the, into the um, trees and find a sapling, a baby tree. And he cuts it down. But not in the, the way you would think of cutting down a tree. He digs it out, down by the roots. And what he does is he begins to whittle into a rod. And the reason he cuts it out is the bottom of a sapling. You ever plant a, a tree, a, a young tree? The bottom it bows out a little bit, and it has a root bulb on the bottom. It's the thickest, sturdiest, hardest part of the tree at that point. That becomes the club end of the rod. Then that person will go ahead and whittle this thing down, making handholds in it, length, weight, so it's perfectly custom-made to their hand. It's a rod. Now, don't think of it like a, a young kid walking around with a stick threatening you. That's not what these things are like. There's a reason shepherds in that area don't carry rifles. They carry rods. It's a potent weapon. It's an offensive and a defensive weapon. But from a young age, they train themselves with amazing accuracy to throw it. They can throw it 50 yards with amazing accuracy. So you could take like a, an exit sign way over there by where you came in. A shepherd could take their rod and boom, fling it and knock that thing off of the roof time after time after time. It's an amazingly uh, precise weapon. They can also use it as a defensive weapon. I was reading the story of a, a, a shepherd in northern Africa who was and he had another guy going around with him um, as they were moving the flock around. And they came across a herd of elephants. And they needed to get the elephants out of the way so they could pass through. So they took a boulder, not to kill the elephants, and they were going to push it down the, down the hill to startle the elephants out of the way. And as they began to both push on the boulder, all of a sudden a snake, a cobra, came out who was under the boulder. And the guy who's telling the story was not the shepherd, it was the other guy. And he says that as the cobra came out, the shepherd swung his club with such speed, he killed the cobra right on the head, just killed him in a spot before he could even strike. Now notice that shepherd was pushing a boulder, but what did he never take out of his hand? His rod. The rod is something that shepherds use to protect the sheep, to defend the sheep. They also walk through and stir up the high grass with their rod to scare animals, you know, snakes or predators out of the high grass. It is something they use to protect their sheep. So it says God has a rod, right? The implications, we're talking about God. What, what kind of rod does God have? Now, sheep know if you're with the shepherd with his rod, you're safe. You're protected. What kind of rod does God have? You ever think about that? There, there's a story, and I'll give you the, the right citation because I'm horrible with it. There's a story where Elijah is out with his servant. Have you ever heard this story? And there's a, um, an attack coming against them. And God reveals to Elijah that he has him protected by allowing Elijah to see horses and chariots of fire surrounding the valley they're in. This isn't some fictitious vision. This is, this is what God had sent to defend them. And Elisha prays to God that his servant's eyes would be open because the servant is scared out of his mind that they're going to die. He prays that God would open his servant's eyes to, to see what's going on. And when he does, the servant realizes, okay, we're going to be okay. I think to an extent, that's a Second Kings chapter 6, if you want to read it. It's a great story. To an extent, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the rod of God. I think of other things like Moses walking the Israelites out, a million people plus, and the waters get pushed back. I think of the rod of God there. I think of Jesus calming the storm. I think of, um, of all the, the plagues sent on Egypt. I think most importantly of the resurrection of Christ. You see, what is the rod of God? It's the fact that he has control over all of creation. He doesn't, God doesn't walk around with a stick hoping that he hits what he's aiming for. 
God carries a rod that's far more potent and powerful and offensive and defensive than any shepherd can. Here's the point I'm getting at. In our life, we face predators. As we walk through this life, the valley of the shadow of death, we face predators. God will protect us from those predators. You say, well, Pastor John, I know for a fact that sometimes bad guys kill good guys, or bad things happen to good people. The predators will never be victorious over us. That doesn't mean you can walk you know, into a, a gang-ridden section of Oakland, California, and be like, I'm a Christian, God's my shepherd, you can't shoot me, you can't shoot me, because you probably won't make it out of the section. But what I am saying is that if God doesn't want you to be shot, there will be no bullet that will touch you. Okay? God will protect us perfectly as we walk in his will. Now, if you're running through the streets of Oakland testing God, you might want to refer back to Jesus during the temptation in the desert when he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. You've got to stay in God's will to be perfectly protected. It doesn't mean that God's not going to bring you back from a cast situation, but no one go to Oakland and, and put my sermon to the test. Do they really? Have they in the gang-ridden sections of Oakland? We'll see. Now, when Kirsten, when next time you go out there, you, you ignore that illustration I just used, unless, unless you come back and it was successful, and then I want to hear all about it. But there are situations where, where you'll see a Christian will be killed for their faith, right? So you say, well, okay, where's the rod? Where's the rod, God? If you're so, if you're so powerful, why wouldn't you protect him? Well, here's the problem. There's that old verse that, who's known the mind of the Lord, or who's been his counselor? We don't know what God's up to perfectly. Perspective, right? We've got to see it from God's perspective. Whenever God allows a single Christian to be persecuted or killed for their faith, there's a greater purpose through that happening. It doesn't mean the predator was victorious. It means that God is using it. It's a difficult concept to understand because you think, well, God would just protect all the people. God knows what he's up to, and he will use his rod to protect us. And what we need to take of that is not that God will do whatever we tell him to do because he's strong enough to do it. But God will protect us perfectly, and we need not worry about anything. It's not just physical attack. It's situations in life. How often do you not tell a friend or a neighbor about Jesus because you're afraid of what's going to happen? Now think about that. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, don't you think he's going to protect you from your neighbor's poor opinion of you? Or might they possibly come to faith through your interaction? You know what I'm saying? We need to go through life... Not, not scared all the time, like, oh, what if someone finds out I'm a Christian? <gasps> what if God doesn't, and I'm talking like I do this perfectly, what if God doesn't provide for me this month and I can't feed my family? <gasps> we got to look at life realistically. The Lord is our shepherd. There's nothing to fear as we go through life because he protects us perfectly with his rod. So he's got a rod. What else does he have? A staff. What's a staff? It's a hook thing. That's what you said a little bit ago. What does a shepherd use a staff for? There are three things a shepherd uses a staff for. Encouragement, direction, and nurturing. First thing, let's do nurturing. When a, a sheep will have a baby, uh, what do you call a baby sheep? Anybody know? A baby sheep, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, I'm asking. I, is it a lamb? <laughs> Come on, Madeline, give me a breath. I'm not that smart. I was educated a long time ago. He will use his, uh, his staff to move the baby over to the mother so the, the baby can eat. Because if he touches it with his hands, it'll pick up his scent, and the mother may reject it. So shepherds can actually use that staff to gently pick up and move a newborn sheep to their mother, nurturing purposes. Um, direction. Shepherds will walk alongside sheep and put the other end of that staff along the side of the sheep to direct them. 
they're not they're not whipping them like left left they just simply walk up it's like a a non-connected leash to an extent they put alongside of the sheep and they give them gentle pushes in the direction they want them to go and shepherds will talk about the comfort their sheep find in that when the shepherd walks alongside them and guides them so deliberately the sheep are so comfortable they're able to move along more expeditiously the last thing is for encouragement sometimes sheep will not do the right thing and the shepherd will gently encourage the sheep to do the right thing not beating them like an angry dog owner I said get over here but gently nudging them in the right way here's one of the, the downsides to Christian the upsides to Christianity that we unfortunately see as a downside if you love God and you're a child of God he's got to parent you perfectly right have you ever tried to raise a kid without uh, disciplining or correcting them doesn't work so well but as kids and as children of God I think that's all how we'd like to live you see, you can, you can avoid discipline by just doing the right thing. In my house, you can, you can never have to have a negative consequence if you obey the rules. Works just fine. It's just how everything always is. Our, my kids have never had to sit on the stairs ever. They, they never tell lies like their dad. When we walk with God, he loves us so much that as we stray, he's got to gently encourage us, sometimes a little more severely as we're more stubborn, to get back where we need to be. That's in part what he does with his staff. God will nurture us, God will direct us, and God will encourage us. I read the story of a sheep that was stuck in a rose bush. Found a little bit of green grass in the middle of the rose bush, and he worked his way in all the way in to take that one measly bite of grass, and then guess what happened? Couldn't get out, because the thorns had worked their way into his wool in such a manner that he couldn't get back. And then he's screaming for help. How often do we look for a measly bite of grass in the middle of a thorn bush? Well, you know what the shepherd did? The same thing God will do. shepherd came over with his staff and extracted the sheep from the rose bush. See, the shepherd would have cut himself up if he had to go in, so he used his staff. God will extract us from the rose bushes, but it's not always a pleasant process to be backed up through thorns. There's no reason you have to be backed up through the thorns other than you put yourself there. But God loves us so much that not only will he re restore us from a cast position, he'll back us out of a thorny situation, if you will, um, because he is our shepherd. So, David's saying here, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they what? They comfort me. What is comfort? I think comfort is something that we all look for in life. Now, there's a difference between security and comfort. A prison is a highly secure... I'm on a gang kick today. Prisons and gangs. A prison is a highly secure facility, right? Most people aren't lounging around prison like, oh, this is so comfortable in here. We got thin pad and bunks and a television stuck on the channel forever. They're, they're secure. They're highly secure. Maybe not from each other, but they're securely locked in there. Comfort has more to do with love. You know? Every child needs to be loved and comforted. Adults need it too. And the problem we have is we go through life trying to find comfort in the wrong places. Christians and non-Christians alike, we need that comfort. Sometimes we look for it in, in all the wrong places, when in reality it's found only in God. People, I was reading somewhere else, people are the only, only uh, animal that runs faster, when they're, that runs towards trouble at a faster rate of speed than they do run away from it as it approaches them. What, it, what he's saying is, any other animal, if you startle them, they'll run away from the danger, back towards what, what's safer. With people, if, when we get scared, we tend to run away from safety and back into the trouble. 
How often do you have something going on in your life and you freak out and you run away from God? You know? People are good at, you know, God, I thank you for the lottery winnings and the new Lamborghini and, and you're just a great God and I love you. You know, next day you get a call from the, from the bank. Uh, actually, you had the wrong numbers and now you're $800,000 in debt and we're going to have to uh, take your home from you and we're going to have to take your cars from you and you just start running crazy trying to fix the problem and you forget all about talking to God. It's a drastic illustration. I don't think it's ever happened. But the reality of the situation is, when we go through the lows, we like to run away from God. And in the highs, we tend to forget about God. But on the way up, sometimes we'll talk to Him a little bit. I think most people would initially say, if you could go through life without ever having to go through a valley, would you? Would you want to? Most people would say yes. Who wants to go through a valley? What are valleys? The very negative things we deal with in life. The hurt relationships, the loss of people, the illnesses, the suffers, the professional... Uh, trials and tribulations that we all go through. We think if I could only avoid them, that would be good. Well, when you read the Bible, everybody in the Bible had some valleys, you know? Everyone. You're like, well, what about Moses? Moses had a 40-year uh, desert journey, and he had a little problem with the rebellious people with him for the next 40 years, and he never got into the Promised Land. He had some serious valley work going on. Good old Joseph. You know the story of Joseph? He had that great dysfunctional family where his brother sold him into slavery. And then it finally seemed to be going good, but then, boom, he got accused of trying to sleep with uh, somebody's wife, got stuck back in prison, and then some guys were going to get him out of prison, but they forgot all about him. He had some serious valleys. What about Paul? That man had some valleys, right? And you read in Paul's letters, he's like, God, I just hate life. It stinks. Why do you leave me here? Why do you forget about me? He doesn't write that stuff, does he? Paul went through some serious valleys. Peter, James, John. Everybody in the Bible went through valleys, and I can look out and know for a fact that everybody sitting here has been through some serious valleys in their life. Some deeper than others, but they're all our own personal valleys. Personally, I can look back at numerous valleys that I went through that I'll say a strange thing about. I would say, if I had to do it again, I would do it again. Do you know why? Because you get nourishment on the valley, and you get to a higher ground with God. If I didn't go through the valleys I had to go through in life, I would never have become a Christian. I would never have been able to do certain things I do today. When we go through the valleys of life, we need to remember a couple things. First of all, we need to look back at the ones that God's taken us through and realize there is benefit to it. Now, there are some valleys that you've gone through that you may not have come fully out of and you don't see benefit yet. Okay, Those will be in the second category in a minute. But when we look back and realize the valleys we've been to have had a positive consequence of nourishment and of getting us to higher ground with God, we realize, okay, God kind of knows what he's up to. But when we live in the valleys, we start to freak out. God, what are you doing? Did you forget about me? Don't you know what's going on? I can't stand this. And we want to just run like heck. But we end like running like heck away from God. As we go through, and you will go through valleys in your life over and over again, because God loves you. As you go through valleys, God will always protect you, provide for you, and nourish you in those valleys. And its perspective is the only thing that's going to get you through. Probably everybody right now has a valley they're, going to, they're going through. Of one, you know, Maybe it's a shallow little valley, maybe it's a deep valley. As you go through it, you need to realize, remember this psalm, and in particular this verse. There is no valley you can get to in life when you're walking in God's will that He hasn't purposefully directed you to or allowed you to go into because it will draw you closer to Him. Period. There is nothing you will go through in life, no matter how horrible it seems. I, you know, I think of Trisha's situation with her mom. That didn't happen by accident. God's not like scrambling. Oh my gosh, I forgot about this one. I didn't pay attention to Trish for a couple days. Her mom had all these strokes and I don't know what to do. No. 
But as Trish holds tight to God, he has a clear purpose to bring her to a higher ground with her, with him. It's not just personal, though. You need to look outside of just yourself. Whenever you go through a valley, you're equipped to minister to other people in a unique way. Uh, there's a, a pastor down south, T.D. Jakes. You've probably heard of him. And I remember him talking one day, talking about how if you were looking for a perfect pastor, he's not your guy. Because he, before he came to faith, he slept around, he drank too much, he smoked things he shouldn't smoke. He had all sorts of problems. But be, now, these are not valleys that God led him to. But God took him out of those valleys. And because he's been there, he can minister to people in the same situation. So, say you lose someone you love dearly. That's a horrible situation. But as you come out of the valley, you can minister to someone in the same situation that someone who never went through that valley couldn't. Make sense? As we go through whatever we go through in our life, we need to have the focus or the perspective of God. Just like this cup. You don't see anything. I mean, if you, you can come up and look after church. You, I'm looking at this thing right here and there's no heart. You can't see it. But when you get over the top of it, it's clear as day. From God's perspective, if you have that perspective, like there's a heart in the cup. You move two inches to the side, there's nothing in the cup. You've got to trust that God's looking from a different perspective than we are. When you go through the valleys, you need to keep that in mind. And in there lies your comfort. Knowing that God is in control, God has a rod and a staff, and God will protect you perfectly. So, Psalm 23, verse 1 said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now we talked back there, we are talking about security, God providing us everything we need. Not what we want. Though sometimes, oftentimes, what we want, what we need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Remember, God makes the pastures. He guides us to the pastures. He prepares the environment around us and for us so we can lay down. Remember those situations sheep needed to lay down? He shows us how to get to the water that we need and gives us a grass, not some cheap imitation of it. He restores my soul he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So you stumble, you fall over. What does God do? He restores cast sheep. He restores cast people. And he holds us as we get back on our feet. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, as ambassadors for Christ. Remember that? And then in verse 4, you notice there's a little shift in pronoun usage here. Even though I walk, the first three verses are kind of like a sheep bragging about their wonderful shepherd. All of a sudden, the sheep starts to talk directly to the shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Folks, I got news for you. Life is a little bit scary at times when you lose focus, no? Things, you know, you got your moments where everything's going good, but then all of a sudden you hit a bump in the road. Well, as Christians, as children of God, you know how we're supposed to deal with that bump of the road? Just, just like an infant would deal with a bump in the road. You just hold on to your mom or your dad, and you know everything's going to be fine. You ever seen little babies sleeping on their, their mom's shoulders in the midst of chaos? You know how they do that? Security and comfort. When we hit a bump in the road, it can startle us and we'll look around, but we just got to hang on to daddy. True comfort comes from understanding what Psalm 23 up to this point is about. That God will protect us as we go through life. Not only in the good, but in the bad. And he has a purpose to everything. So if you find yourself today in the pit of a valley... Don't give up. Trust. If you find yourself on the top, thank God for taking you through the valley. And ask Him, what, what is the full purpose you want me to do with that valley? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let's pray. 
Father God, I just can't thank you enough for the fact that you uh, want to be our shepherd. You don't force us to be locked into your pen. You don't uh, put, put leashes on our necks to lead us to high ground. But you show us the way. And when we distance ourselves from you, you come and get us. When we fall over, you come and stand us back up. When we're stubborn-headed and don't want to move, you gently prod us, and you love us enough to prod us a little harder so we don't get left behind and to be picked off by predators. God, I thank you so much that you're patient with us, that you're forgiving for us, that you're always with us, that you're always taking us to a better, more intimate relationship with you. And God, I thank you for the fact that you sent your son to die on the cross so that we can be your sheep. That left by ourselves, we should be sheep cast into the fire. Dirty, rotten, good-for-nothing sheep that serve no purpose. But God, that's not how you view us. You view us as your very own children, and you restore us to right relationship with you through your Son. It's a love bigger than we can ever understand, but God, help us to continue to, to get greater glimpses of that day by day. And God, help all of us as we go through this psalm, especially this verse, to, to have eyes to see, like Elijah and his servant at times. To, to know not only that you're there, but to see your hand at work, to see your rod and your staff present before us. As Elisha and his servant saw the, the, the real horses and the real chariots of fire that you sent to protect them, help us understand this isn't some fictitious uh, fairy tale designed to give us uh, comfort through life as, as we struggle with, with our feelings of insecurity. But there are honest to goodness real angels out there that look out for us. It, even though we don't see you, you're as real as the wind. Help us feel you like we feel the wind on, on a breezy day. Help us to see you at work as we see the leaves blow around from the force of the wind. But God, you know better than we do how, how uh, concerned, how um, immature we are in our faith, how untrusting we are at times. Be gentle but deliberate with us to show us your presence, to show us your will, to show us your rod and your staff so that we can take just that next step as you show us the one to take after that. God, thank you for all you do for us and help us serve you well and be the light you desire for us to be as you shine through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.